If you'll join with me in today's scripture reading, we'll be reading from John 14, 1 through 7. And in the Pew Bibles, this is page 901. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. It's um, interesting how this Holy Spirit works and the timing of various passages that come to mind at certain times. I was at a memorial service yesterday where this was the passage that was being spoken of, um, of a dear uh, friend who was pretty instrumental in regeneration getting started. He's a former elder of a church in San Francisco who at the starts of regeneration allowed us to do midweek Bible studies out in San Francisco. So we actually had this site Wednesday nights at this place called Dolores Park Church. And then a whole bunch of those people actually, when we moved to this facility, helped us redo everything in here because they had a bunch of handy people that did plumbing and electrical and all these things. And they would come out every Saturday and this individual was part of that group. Not only that, but as I told many of you last week, our dear member and friend Howard was in hospice care and he passed away this past Monday. And so this verse very dear to my heart now, just thinking through them and verses that are actually very familiar to many of us in the Gospel of John. We can recite some of these verses because we've read them so much, things we're very familiar with. And we're early on in what is called the upper room discourse. And in this chapter where Jesus is betrayed, where Jesus is denied, not this chapter, but in the discourse, and some of these verses, like verses 1 and 6, we've heard these things very many times. Like, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I think a lot of us can recite that. Verse 6 is something that many of us can recite. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We know these verses now, a little bit of context to set the stage before we jump into the passage this morning is just a reminder of kind of the, the feelings in that room and how people were interpreting what Jesus was saying. Um, the feeling in this room is initially one of celebration because it's, it's the Passover, but then it suddenly turns really heavy because Jesus is sharing that he's troubled in spirit. So no doubt that the others probably sense that in their teacher. Like, how come this one's not as like it used to be for us? 
in previous Passovers, because they've been with Jesus for three years, right? So they've celebrated Passover with Jesus before, yet why is this one a little different? Because Jesus said in verse 21, chapter 13, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so it changes things in there. And so like I've said to you before, I confess to you in my heart that in this time, um, it has a different feeling for me reading this because, yes, my heart is troubled. And how uncanny the Lord is in terms of allowing us to experience things different ways. And even though I know this passage really well, I've never felt as troubled during this time to understand like that troubled feeling and getting to that place of that troubled feeling has never been as like in arm's reach for me to be able to like, feel this. And so it's interesting in that way. And I'm hoping that this time for you as we enter a time of Lent is a little bit different, that it's not the same thing. At least for me, it's not a typical work week. That this, this is striking me differently because receiving this disturbing news and we've all been in those types of situations where we've received upsetting news where our minds get unsettled and then our thoughts start going all over the plates and our hearts are heavy trying to figure out what's being done next and I couldn't help comparing myself to these like saints like this guy named Bill everything people was sharing about him I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. Like, I don't understand why I'm a pastor and Bill wasn't. Like, he, he was so much loving than I was. He was so much more patient than I was. Like, no one had a bad thing to say about him. And I've known the guy for over 20 years. That his family even thought the same way that all those people did. Like, there was no, like, skeleton in the closet to share. And I was like, I'm not that good. Like, I, I'm sure if I gave the mic, there are people that can say lots of bad things about me. Like, <laughs> like, there's, how is it? And asking the Lord, like, how is it? And it's just so humbling because Howard would share with me, like, you're my pastor. And I was like, how can that be? Like, you're so saintly. You help everybody. And you drop everything anytime just to help someone. Like, I'm not like that. I have these boundaries where I'm like, no, I can't. But he's like, just so generous with time and things to learn from. And so plugging into this and thinking, Jesus was troubled. And then to think, you know, Jesus was never someone who was just an empty shell of a person. He experienced these troubled feelings. He experienced troubled thoughts and in his case this amount of stress this immense amount of stress knowing what was going to happen to him in a matter of hours in a matter of hours what was going to happen that he was going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends and then for a closer friend in Peter like one of his three closest friends his inner circle how that friend was going to deny him and so this very heavy time of difficulty for Jesus at this time. And yet in the middle of this really heavy time, you notice that Jesus never loses self-control. 
Never. And he's actually the only one who knows exactly what's going to happen to him, what is about to happen while his closest friends are already there enjoying a meal together, while they are clueless about what's troubling Jesus' heart. They are oblivious to the weight on Jesus' shoulders. And even through this tremendous difficulty that Jesus is not self-absorbed, what does he actually do? He washes their feet, continues to love them, serve them, care for them, even though he knows these things, and he's totally focused on them and what they need, even though they don't even know what they need. He is still doing this. And do you see how selfless Jesus is? That during a time of his own troubled heart, he's still looking at how to care and love his disciples. And if there was ever a time that Jesus needed to take care of himself and was justified to take care of himself, this would be a time to do this. Right now, and yes, Jesus did that on other occasions where he went off to be alone with God the Father and pray, and he, he did take those times. But at this time, even though his heart is so troubled, he knows he needs to focus on his disciples because they needed it more, and he was going to say to them what he needed to say and minister to them about the future because he would no longer be with them physically. And so Jesus ministered to them way before they even knew that they needed it. Jesus shared about his own troubled heart in chapter 13. And then he's telling them. So I remember this other pastor, friend of mine, who he was an assistant pastor out in the uh, Angels Camp, Twain Heart area. And I, I would go visit him because he had this rare skin-eating disease. And so he was losing his limbs and he was losing his like ears and nose and things like that. And um, it's Pastor Joe. And, you know, I'd visit him each time he'd go out to UCSF because he'd have to go out there for like different amputations and things like that. So he was losing his legs and he was losing his arms and his nose and his ears and things like that. And he would just start wasting away. Every time I went to minister to him, I didn't because he just ministered to me. It was like the strangest thing. I was like, dude, you are, are losing your limbs and your nose and your ears. Like, you're, you're wasting away. And every time I'd go in, he was like, hey, young Pastor Albert Lee. Because I was like, I was young then. I was like in my late 20s or something like that. And he was an older gentleman, a grandfather. And I was like, how can I pray for you? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you're wasting away. You're like a stump. And he would just minister to my heart. He was always serving me. I think he already knew, like, I'm going away. I'm going to go be with Jesus. And you're earlier on in your ministry, and I just want to set you off. I want to make sure things are good for you. And he would just always minister to me every time. And decades later, he's still in my phone. I haven't deleted him. And just, like, as a reminder, I can, like, scroll to his contacts and just be like, how would Joe handle this? Like, what would Joe say to me? And so Jesus says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house. There are many rooms. If we're not so, 
what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. It's a question that Jesus is answering even though they're not asking the question. It's like Jesus already knew. He, he, he knows it will be something that they're going to ask later. So I'm just going to tell you the answer now. I'm going to give you the answer ahead of time. And then he also takes the time to answer individual questions from Thomas and also from Philip. So he answers this broad question, but then he still has the time, even though he's really troubled, to address these individual questions from the other disciples. And then he's going to give them the antidote for these individual questions, even though he has this troubled heart. And he knows that they're going to have troubled hearts too. So even when Jesus himself is experiencing a troubled heart, he is giving them the cure. He's giving them the cure to a troubled heart so that they will experience the same things Jesus is already currently experienced. Not in the absence of a troubled heart, but with a troubled heart, he is still experiencing self-control, poise, peace. To successfully go through this time of trouble, and it's likened to a doctor who knows what the cure for their patient is that is experiencing this ailment that has them experiencing trouble and the doctor has the same disease. And the doctor prescribes what the doctor already has ordered for themselves and is taking that same medicine for themselves. And it's not to say that the doctor won't experience the same symptoms and troubles associated with a disease but at the end, they know it's going to be fine. They know the outcome of it. And that's Jesus. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the symptoms of what's going to happen to him. He knows death is coming, but he knows the end. I am going to suffer. I am going to go through these troubles. I am going to go through a lot of heartbreak and a denial and a betrayal. I am going to worry about my mom and what happens to her afterwards that I have to let John know, like, hey, can you take care of my mom when I'm gone? Because she's going to be a widow and, you know, I, I can't count on my brothers. They don't even believe what's going on anyway. And, and all these different things going on in, in his mind, and that's Jesus, that his heart is troubled now, but, but he knows I'm moving to glory. I know that. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to be absent of feeling troubled. I mean, you look back to John chapter 13, starting in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. He, he knows this. He knows the end game. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And he's speaking of this glory in the middle of having a troubled heart. You look forward. The disciples do learn this lesson. But they're faced with many situations that will have troubled hearts raised within them. And if you think about these disciples, every single one of them dies a martyr except for one. The one who wrote this gospel. John. Every other one died a martyr. Somewhere. Now, 
it's not to say John didn't have a troubled heart because he did. And he lived through tremendous pain, tremendous persecution. Church history tells us that John lived through being fried, that he was boiled in oil. And he lived through that. And then that's what church history tells us. And then it tells us that he was exiled by the Roman emperor to an island called Patmos to live in isolation and by himself and just to essentially die there. That he's there just to be on his own during the Christian persecution. And we know this, how? Because that is where he wrote the book of Revelation. And so you can go to Patmos today, which is really beautiful, by the way. You know, you think of Santorini, like this island where partying and all this kind of stuff. Well, Patmos is similar in the beauty of it all in the Greek islands, except no partying. It's just kind of like, this is where you go to visit where John wrote the book of Revelation, and that's about it. But it, you look out, and it's like a beautiful place. And so during this exile, he writes this book. So they did all learn what Jesus taught them, believing in him in times of trouble, and they were able to live through these times of trouble in self-control, with poise, in peace. It's a sign for those who trust in Jesus to have these qualities in times of trouble, to know that the Lord is in control. Jesus wants us to understand this, that as we go through times of trouble, that we don't lose our trust in God, that we are focused on our belief in Jesus, that faith comes through Christ. And there are people who speak of faith and belief, but who is it or what is it that that belief is in? That belief needs to be in someone. That faith needs to be in something worthy of that faith and belief, right? That you can't just have belief for belief's sake. That you can't just have faith in anything for these certain outcomes what does your faith lie on or who does it rely on because does that what or who have power? Does it have authority to do what you are hoping for? That's the question you have to ask. Whatever philosophy that is, whatever ideology that is, whatever person that is, do they have the power, do they have the authority to actually do what you are hoping for? And for most people, I would say, no. It's just this empty thing, whether they just say, you just have to have belief, you just have to have faith. But in what? In who? And do they really have authority? Do they really have the power? And Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Your hearts believe in God. Believe also in me. That is the who that you are supposed to put your trust and faith in. He's not just saying for faith's sake, for belief's sake. Because by believing in Jesus, Jesus goes on to explain, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now this is something that we in the West were not as familiar with. But the idea, as your family grows, 
there would be these additions to your house. Like in the West, we're totally different about this because we're thinking, can't wait till that 30-year-old moves out of my basement, right? Like we, there's a joke about that now, right? There's a joke like, oh, your 40-year-old moved back and he's living in the basement and playing video games. Ha, 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 when are they going to move out? Like it's like a big joke for us and things. But back in this time, it's not a joke. It's like a desire. Like your oldest child, your oldest son, would kind of take on the responsibility of taking care of the parents. So the parents' home, they have grandma and grandpa there too, and as son gets married, hey, we're, we're just going to add on to the house, and we're going to bring in the daughter-in-law, and then our grandchildren are going to live in there too, and then it just kind of keeps going, and it's generational living, and so I was in a, a house in a Palestinian territory called Hebron, and that's exactly what was happening, like this huge home was there for, for generations, they've been there for eight generations, they've had this for hundreds of years. And the Israeli government has even offered them $80 million to buy this plot of land. It's a four-story house for $80 million. I was like, are you kidding me? Take it, bro. Like, it's like, it's not even that big. But then they're like, we have four generations living here. We've been here for many generations. Our ancestors, there's no way we're selling, even if they offer us $8 billion never selling. And that's how it was. Adding on to it, like more generations and more generations, we're just going to add on to this. So when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, there's a picture in their minds of what Jesus is talking about, that Jesus is including us, and this is very important, in his non-dysfunctional family. Because that's a, a big reason why is we're like, oh, I can't live with my mom. I need these kids to move out. It's because a lot of times for us, like, there is dysfunction. Yeah, there's no way. I, I do not want to move in with this family member. No way. But in Jesus' non-dysfunctional family, where everyone is living together in this closeness and intimacy and care, it's actually living in harmony, not a chaotic home. And the question isn't, whether there's that room for us or that place for us that Jesus is building it out. He already knows. Hey, there, I, I got more kids coming and I'm just going to build on top of it. And so the question isn't whether if there is a place for us or a room for us. The question is whether you're going to go there. He's already built it out for you and me. It's, it's just whether are you going to move in? Or are you going to deny, you know, I don't want to move in, like I'm good. I'm going to go do my own thing. And if I go prepare a place for you, if, if you want it, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. You know where it is, right guys? I'll come back and, and help you navigate to go there, but you know how to get there. I told you that already. So there's a place for you, but are you going to go? Are you going to come over? How do you get there? You believe in Jesus. That's essentially the Christian gospel. Belief in Christ. And what happens next is a bit unusual in that 
Peter doesn't say something. Because usually he has a problem, right? Like, not me, Jesus. Or like he, he, he always has like some rebuttal and something to say. But he doesn't this time. It's actually Thomas this time. Because I think Peter is still reflecting on just a few minutes before where Jesus is telling him, um, you're going to deny me three times. And so I'm thinking Peter's like just thinking like, am I? I wouldn't do that. I can understand it. And so as they're having this conversation, I think in the back of his mind, he doesn't say anything because he's still reflecting upon what Jesus told him about his denial and just kind of like questioning himself and like fighting within himself. Like, there's no way I'm going to do that. No way. And so it's actually Thomas that says something because we don't even hear from Peter until chapter 18 at the denial of Jesus. But then we know that Peter recovered, that Peter believed and he was so deeply impacted by these words in the upper room that you look at how it affected him in first Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 3 this is what he writes many many years later and he writes this blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ and think about all the things he learned in that upper room discourse and, and plug into like what he's writing here in first Peter now According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I know there's a room for me. He told me, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And you think back at this time, after the upper room discourse where he fails miserably, how? He did deny Jesus three times, just as he said. He fails miserably, and he remembers when Jesus told him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Right, that was back in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. What is Jesus' cure for a troubled heart? It's Jesus Christ himself. Faith in Jesus Christ to bring about self-control, poise, peace. And he gives them this awareness, this answer about how to cure a troubled heart. But it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus also addresses these individual questions. And you think about this. It's not that Jesus just answers these big questions. How does he cure a troubled heart? He's very interested in your question. He's very interested in what you as an individual is going through that is causing your troubled heart. Because he's a personal God. And there are questions that you and I have that are very unique to you and me. And these unique questions, Jesus desires to address them because he knows what you are going through exactly. Which is a very irritating statement that I hear sometimes. And I cringe sometimes when I hear people say this to each other. When they say like, you know, they, they share their heart about a loss of a child. Or the divorce that they're going through. 
or, or a loss of a loved one, and then someone comes alongside them and they, and they say this statement that makes me cringe. I know exactly what you're going through. You're like, what? How? And it's because of similar situations, right? Oh, because I lost a child, I know exactly what you're going through. Because I lost a parent, I know exactly what you're going through. Because I lost my marriage, I know exactly what you're going through. But that's not true. Because our circumstances are all different. And you and I are all wired differently. Like things affect different people differently. It's not black and white. It's the same thing as medications, right? Some medications, for some reason, work for some people, even though the biology is so-called the same, but like different dosages work for different people. The different times of when you take that work for different people. And it's the same thing as when we're Caring for someone in this pastoral counseling way, it it hits people differently because we're all different people. And so in pastoral counseling, we are trained never to say things like that. We don't say, "I, I know exactly what you're going through. Like, that is not something we say because we don't. We don't. We're, we are not those people. And there are different people involved in all of it. Like it's so complicated and dynamic and complex. So many different variables that it's not the same exact situation. They may be similar, but they are unique from person to person going through that situation that through those times of loss and trouble, it's still different. And you think about Jesus... And the thing is, he does know exactly, though. He's not just like any other person. That he does fully understand, he does fully, because he is God, he can place himself in your shoes. He, he can do that. He, he has that power. He has that authority to be able to empathize Fully. Take a look at John chapter 16, verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. You know all things. And do not need question anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You know all things. But we still have our questions. And Thomas has one for Jesus. And Christians usually have an adjective for Thomas, right? We, we usually place this adjective before Thomas a lot of times, and what is it? Doubting. doubting Thomas. Like, we always have this adjective. I don't know what we have for Peter, but there should be one for Peter, because we know how he is too, but we don't know what it is. But for Thomas, it's doubting Thomas, right? Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Why do we call him Doubting Thomas? Because he's the one that didn't believe that Jesus resurrected. He had his doubts. He's the one that said to all the other disciples who did experience Jesus and did see him resurrected in person, but Thomas missed out on this, and so he doesn't believe, and so what does he say? John chapter 20, verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. I gotta see it to believe it. And I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. I got to see it to believe. I got to touch it. Thomas is so much like a lot of people I know, especially in the Bay Area with tech people. They're they're like this, right? 
because they're very analytical and they want what? Data. I need the data. Give me the data for, to process this. They need that. They want empirical evidence. Don't just tell me your fluffies. Show me the evidence. Show me the proof. This is Thomas. Like he'd, he'd be someone working in Silicon Valley. Like that's, that's his personality. That's who he is. And Thomas is just this very practical person who strongly believes in logic, who strongly believes in reason. He loves math. He loves puzzles. Because like there, there are these outcomes. You do this and then this happens. It's very proof-oriented. And he's the one in chapter 11. You can trace this about Thomas. Chapter 11, when, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, doubting Thomas is the one who says this in chapter 11, verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I don't quite know what he meant by that, if he meant that they should die with Lazarus, because that's like his analytical mind saying like, hey, this happened, so we should just die with him, or that he's being really sarcastic, and he's saying like, Martha and Mary are going to kill us, because we took so long, and so we're just going to die. Or, you know, if we go to Jerusalem now, and if everything what you're telling us is true, we're, we're going there to die. Just not sure what he's meaning, but from all these various examples of the type of person we see Thomas is in this chapter, in chapter 11, in chapters to come, when he's saying, like, I got to put my finger there, I got to put my hand in there. He's a very cynical person. He's a realist, right? He, he, he needs data. He, and before any of that happens, he's very pessimistic of what is being told to him. Before he can see proof, he's very pessimistic of what people tell him, which also means he's faithless. He's more faithless than the others because he's someone that has to see to believe. What is faith? You don't need to see. And he's not listening to what Jesus has to say. And he says, you know, unless I see in his hands, or I place my finger in his hands, or I place my hand in his side, you see how faithless that is? Because if you're just needing those senses of sight and touch, like, that's not how we have faith in Jesus. How do we have faith in Jesus? Romans 10 verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Thomas is really reliant and dependent on himself to interpret what's happening. And he's not listening to what Jesus is saying in that discourse. The word of Christ. And there are people like Thomas in our churches today, especially in the Bay Area, very data-driven. And so, of course, so valuable are these people to our church because, yes, we need people like that. They're valuable, but let's not fool ourselves. We're still pessimists. I'm in this camp. I love data. 
I love interpreting and I love researching and I love doing the things I need before making an investment or putting things, a large chunk of money in something. I, I, I need that stuff. But I also confess, I probably need more help in developing trust without seeing, without touching. Because sometimes that realism holds us back from experiencing something fully. In verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds with what is familiar to very many Christians. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and I have seen him. This isn't just an answer to Thomas. It's something for all of us to hear, to remind us to never take our eyes off of Jesus, to trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that can't be a tangibly proven thing. That is a a faith thing, that without faith, which is trust in Jesus, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now there's a, a book that I highly recommend. It's a book that all the interns that have come through regeneration in years past have read it. And if people are to ask me, hey, what, what's a book that you recommend that I read? This one's at the top of the list, and it's a book from Thomas Kempis, and it's called The Imitation of Christ. You might be able to find it in the bookshelves over there, but most likely not, because when I recommend it, somebody's probably already taken it. But here's a quote from that book. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. And so in our world, this is not a very readily accepted doctrine. Most people here do not like this because we love inclusivity. That is a big buzzword for people here in the Bay Area. Inclusive. Inclusive. But you'll notice this is very exclusive. Extremely exclusive because Jesus is saying, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's not saying, I am a way. I'm the way. The truth. The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our only opportunity to God is through Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other option. If there is, please show me. Because living in our context, in in our world, it would be much more relieving for me, quite honestly. It'd be a lot easier. And it's so much the same thing for a lot of the doctrines in the Bible. Like It would be so much easier for us to have like this more universal inclusivity. And people hate exclusive claims like this. They hate it, even though it's a reality. It's a reality, isn't it? Like, you look at our world today and how things equal out to each other, many things are exclusive. 
not everyone can do the jobs that you guys do. Not everyone lives in the places that you live. Like there's a lot of exclusivity in many things in our life. Like that those are the natural outcomes of things in our life. And it's things like this in verse 6 that have people upset and, and look at our Bible and our gospel and, and they do not like this message. But the thing we have to take into consideration is it's not our message. It's not my message. It's not something that I, I'm saying like it's coming from me. This is the Christian message. This is what Jesus said. It's Jesus's message and I would encourage you, as you have trouble with this, that you go out and test it. Test what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. And so for you to ask, is there another way? Test it. Look for it. Like, is there another way? And, and test it. Is there another way that bypasses Jesus to God the Father, to experience all the peace, love, joy of the Heavenly Father. And it's not according to Jesus. There's not a way. Is Jesus the only truth to the Father? And so is there another reality to describe the truth of knowing God? Is there another truth? And again, you have to look at whatever it is. Does it have power? Does it have authority for those things? And again, the, the I am the life to the Father. Is there another means to eternal life? If you think there is, does that thing or that someone have power, authority to lead you to that? And so Jesus is saying to Doubting Thomas, he's saying to us, stop interpreting the world through your own limited eyes. Stop it. And listen to what I am saying. And, and whatever it is, fix your gaze on me. On Jesus. Stop relying on yourself and what you see and what you can touch. Stop relying on yourself. And then what comes is, is Philip. Philip is the next question. And, and he's wired differently than Thomas. And he's not the I have to see it to believe it type. But he listened to what Jesus said. And he comes up with this request for Jesus. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And that is enough for us. And so he said, hey, Jesus, if you show us God, um, we're done. We're all good. Just, just do that. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Like, Philip, you, you've already seen the Father. Duh. Like, you know, me. How can you say, show us the Father? It's like, I'm here. And so, Philip, how can you follow me for like three solid years? And you don't know me. And you're asking, show us the Father? Like, I'm right here. And so the problem isn't showing us the Father. The problem is that Jesus has been with Philip for three solid years. And Philip still doesn't see Jesus for who he is. And the words Jesus spoke were words of the Father. Look at John chapter 12, starting verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority... 
But the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You know, that was pretty recent. That was just two chapters ago that he shared this. And all that you have heard, all that you have actually seen, and you still don't know? Jesus has revealed the Father's will to them. He revealed God's heart to them. He revealed God's power to them. And Jesus told Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now going back to verse 10 in chapter 14, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You've seen all the miracles, Philip. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The verses from 6 through 13, they have more references to the Father than anywhere else in the Bible. If you just kind of look at how many times the Father's repeated, it's a dozen times. It's 12 times. So what is John getting across and repeating this over and over again, 12 times through verses 6 through 13? You need to know who the Father is, that Jesus and the Father are one. Like how many times do I have to tell you guys in the Gospel of John, Jesus and the Father are one? That you need to trust the Father. You need to trust Jesus. Philip, you've been with me this long and you still don't know him. You don't know God as loving, gracious, merciful, redeeming, saving, kind. And this is really possible, isn't it? Because it's not just Philip that does this, but we do this all the time. We do this all the time. This describes some of us. And some people we know who claim to know Jesus. Jesus has been with us for some a very long time. We've been walking with Jesus a long time. And how often we don't fully comprehend what we have in the gospel. And like Philip, people, some of us, we've been hanging out with Jesus a really long time. And yet we don't really know him. You know, we've been coming to church, we've been reading our Bible, we've fellowshiped, we've witnessed all these things, but the thing is, is we really don't know him. And the question for us this morning is, is, is that one of us? Is that you? Because plug your name into this, because can Jesus say this about you? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Fill in your name. Because this is a very important question for us to understand. Just plug in your name into that question. How Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Put in your name. Especially if you have a troubled heart. And if that is true for you, if you are a Philip at this current time, it's not to say you can't change because obviously he does. Because who does he become known as? Philip the evangelist he totally changes he becomes known as the evangelist 
And you can ask Jesus to know him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May we trust in Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, how humbling a question because there are many of us that have followed you for a very long time that we, we know your word. We can recite verses like verses 1 and 6. We, we know them. And yet at the same time, like Philip, we make these statements that show that we really don't know you. And many of us are like a Thomas in that we lack faith. We need like this data and we need these things that lead us down a path that don't allow us to exercise faith. And so I pray, Lord, that we are forgiven of those things. We know that you redeem those sins in us because we can look at Peter who denied you and how you used him so mightily. We can look at Thomas who doubted you and how you used him and he died a martyr for your church. We can look at Philip who had these questions even though he was with you for so long and you use him as a mighty evangelist. We have these examples of your restoration and your redemption and it isn't too long to take for you to change who we are. I pray for that internal change in us, Lord, to bring us more into likeness of you as we imitate you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have people up front to pray. Susanna in the right front pew and Mike will be in the left front pew. They would be honored to pray with you. And, and if you want to pray through your own heart because you have these doubts like Thomas did or, or, or that Philip did or, or you've been denying Christ, you've been struggling through this a backslidden state like Peter, they would love to pray with you and to kind of come alongside you and, and, and partner with you in, in these things and praying for a changed heart. If you don't know Christ, they would love to share the gospel with you fully, answer some questions that you have. Please use this time to do that. You're, you're not here by accident. We want to come alongside you. And at this time, we will take communion together. Jesus has said during this Passover that he was having with his disciples that they were going to do this until his return. And so this is what we do. We, we do this regularly until his return and, and that wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. Let's take that together. And the blood of Christ spilled for us, for all of those of us who are like a Peter, a Thomas, a Philip. He redeems us in Jesus' name. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We are preparing our hearts right now, Lord, for what is the biggest celebration we have on our calendar celebrating your death and resurrection. 
that has paved the way for us to have relationship with the Father, which is such a strong point in John 14, verses 6 through 13. You and the Father are one. If we've seen you, if we've read about you, that we already seen God. So, Lord, may those words, your words, pierce our heart. May they be very true to us. In Jesus' name, amen.